Well, as God's providence would have it, we're, we're now beginning the book of Exodus, where we see God's people become a nation and then oppressed. And I know that's what some of you have been feeling the last couple weeks. As my wife said to me, for the first time in my life, I feel hated just for being a Christian. And, you know, through the miracle of Facebook, we get to keep in touch with all of our friends we went to UCLA with, and that was before we were Christians. And so, as Christians now, to see all their comments, and there's not just celebrating in their voices, but there's a tone of, now it's time to get our pound of flesh. And Yeah, I know we told you that if you just leave us alone... We'll, we'll leave you alone, but it looks like it's going to be, now it's time to make you pay, and probably the church's tax-exempt status will be on the chopping block next, and we're going to trust in our God. Amen. Amen. He's, he's not broke. His people have been oppressed before, persecuted, and it's when his people flourish, actually. In fact, it's in times of plenty that we often get lazy in our faith and begin to put our faith in material things, in governments, put our faith in men instead of the man, the God-man, Jesus Christ. As I was reflecting this week, I, I found it difficult to celebrate the fourth, although we were, my wife reminded me that it's you're always grumpy on the 4th. I don't know why. It's like not my favorite holiday. I'm a Thanksgiving, Christmas kind of guy. So maybe I'm too pale to take the heat and be outside all day. I don't know what it is. But in this particular case, I was thinking, so our, our country, uh, you know, founded by uh, originally religious refugees who wanted to escape religious oppression and fleeing a country where the church had taken the role of head of the church away from Christ and given it to men. And then the state turned around and took the role of the church. And they said, we need to leave and start over and create a government that protects the church from the state. Protects the church from the state. That Christ is head of the church, not the state. Or as many t-shirts we've seen around, it's not freedom from religion, it's freedom of religion. That the state shouldn't tell us how to worship and how to interpret the Bible and how to come to conclusions on our theology. It's not freedom of worship, it's This is what the world is telling us. Go ahead and go to church on Sunday, close the door, and worship how you want. But when you come out of those doors, you will follow the God of secular humanism. And you will bow the knee to the God of secular humanism. That's not freedom at all. That's not religious freedom. If we can't take our God out into the public, then he's no God at all. He's just an idol. 
And so I was thinking on the sad irony that so many people were celebrating the very thing that our founders fought so hard to escape. Now the state telling the church how to interpret something as fundamental as the definition of marriage when God was so clear and Christ so clear in Matthew 19. A man shall leave father and mother and cling to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And so as we celebrated our independence, the irony really struck me last night while watching the fireworks that Many have been celebrating this new freedom they have found and don't realize they have put themselves under greater bondage. Not just bondage of the state. You give the state that much power to determine such things as ultimate realities. You really want to give man that kind of power to determine ultimate realities. But also under the worst bondage, the bondage of the flesh. Somebody gave me a link to a Tim, Timothy Keller video, and I'm thankful for that. And he described bondage to sin in Genesis 3 as Satan tempting man to think that if I listen to God, I won't be happy. I, I like the way that was phrased. It's a good way of thinking. If I obey God, I won't be happy. God gave man everything. He created man in his image, put him in paradise, gave him companionship, gave him purpose. Best of all, perfect relationship with God. And said, stay away from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil lest you die. And and Satan said, you won't die. You'll actually live better. You'll have more life. You'll have the opposite of death. You'll get to Determine your own identity, your own reality, your own happiness, your own purpose, your own worth. These are not things that the created can determine for himself. Only the creator can determine these ultimate realities. And so the lie that we're all, we've all inherited in our flesh is, I know better than God what will make me happy. I know better than God. And... Our world believes that is true liberty, true freedom, and yet the Bible describes that as the ultimate bondage, slavery to sin. That it is for freedom Christ set us free. Freedom from the penalty of sin, which is eternal punishment, and and freedom from the power of sin. That no longer do I have to listen to my sin nature that tells me, Don't listen to God. Don't listen to God. You won't be happy. So I think we all know that oppression is coming. And in God's providence, here we are on this section of Scripture on the oppression of the nation Israel while in Egypt. And they had a good run. Israel did. Joseph settling down with his family in the land of Goshen under the protection of Pharaoh who was grateful that Joseph saved his country from famine, invited his whole family to come live. They had a great deal 
worked out. You guys raise the cattle over here. We find it sacrilegious to raise cattle, though we don't mind eating it. You raise the cattle, we'll leave you alone. And of course, we know that God had this covenant with Abraham that he would make him a father of a great nation through his seed. A Messiah would come, he would give him a promised land and that he would bless his nation and all the nations that blessed Israel, God would bless. And certainly Egypt was blessed as the people lived in the land of Goshen. For some 300 years, we reckon. So the gap between the end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus is a pretty long gap in history. By the way, we keep talking about history here, and because you've been going to church for so long and you realize all these historical stories are true, true history, we lose sight of the fact that we live in a world now that um, separates the sacred from the secular and really ignores the supernatural altogether. So they want to explain all of reality through the material world. And yet there's major religions in the world that do the opposite. They ignore the material because that's not ultimate reality and only focus on the spiritual. And yet our meta-narrative, our story of the Bible, perfectly combines the two to explain all of reality. That in the beginning, God, there's the spiritual, created the heavens and earth, the material. It's the only story that makes sense of all of reality. In Exodus 1.6, we read that Joseph died and all his brothers and, and all that generation. But the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty, so that the land was filled with them. Doesn't this sound like the Abrahamic covenant? This is the promise God made. And we were wondering how he was going to pull this off. Well, if you already knew the story, you knew. But as we studied the patriarchal family, we saw a lot of sin and dysfunction and infighting. And you're like, God, how are you going to create this huge nation out of this family that makes the Kardashians look normal? And he does it because God's amazing against what we would call all odds. God is the God of the impossible. We reckon from reading in the book of Numbers when they count the Israelites when they leave Egypt, spoiler alert, <laughs> they are going to leave Egypt because God said, I'm giving you a promised land. You can't live there forever. The count was some 603,000 males over the age of 20. Adding in women and children, we get a number between 2 and 3 million people. This is Los Angeles-sized people living parallel with Egypt, but certainly their lives intertwining, intermingling. So how are we going to get 
an entire nation of people to pick up and leave. Again, it seems impossible. Yet with God, all things are possible. And here's how he does it. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And we're not talking about personally because he comes a lot later. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't know Joseph. Who's this Joseph? What's this deal you cut with Joseph? I, I didn't make this deal with him. Historians are in disagreement, but best we could tell, a group called the Hiscus rose to power and kind of pushed the Egyptian power to the side. And the Hiscus were a Semitic people, so these are actually distant relatives of Joseph's family. The time frame is about 1730 B.C. when they come into power, and they're in power until about 1570 B.C. Moses would eventually be born in 1525. Remember that when we're talking about history before Christ, the numbers work backwards. And then after Christ, the years get larger. So you kind of have to turn your mind backwards right now as we talk dates. And so this king decides they're going to oppress the Hebrew people. Now, before we move on, I want to define oppression and I want to warn you of what oppression is not. That's going to be very important in the sermon and in the coming weeks. Oppression is the prolonged, cruel, or unjust treatment. Prolonged, cruel, or unjust treatment or control. Prolonged, cruel, or unjust treatment or control. And the reason I say warning is because it's human nature to want to label yourself oppressed. When in actuality, you might be responsible for bringing discipline on yourself. Or there may not be oppression at all, but it is just perceived oppression in your life. People with an extreme fear of man will often mistake, mistakenly assume that they are being oppressed when the truth is they're just easily offended and they've put a chip on their shoulder. Our sin nature, as we saw with the patriarchal family, can manifest itself in so many ways, and this is a very common way. In fact, this is not the country we live in now. Everybody's offended by everything. And there's people here this morning, and this morning is for you. There's teens who feel oppressed by their parents. Prolonged, cruel, or unjust treatment or control. Yes, that's my life. Employees feel oppressed by their employers. And wives and husbands feeling oppressed by their spouses. Ironically, in the same family. Like, how can you both be oppressed? One of you has to be the oppressor. 
right? <laughs> yeah. Tuesday's my day. In our country, every conceivable group, minority group, feels oppressed. In fact, I was reading at Harvard University, they've coined this term microaggression or micro-oppression. What, what might microaggression or micro-oppression look like? Well, when you grade my paper for spelling and grammar errors at Harvard. You said, that is, that is so sad. They say, well, you lofty, elitist, white Protestants with your spelling and your grammar, keeping the rest of us under your thumb. I'm not making this stuff up. But I don't really feel sorry for the Harvard professors because this is the stuff they've been teaching for decades and now it's coming back to bite them. You teach people they're oppressed and pretty soon they'll believe it and anyone in authority is the oppressor and you're the professor. So you're the oppressor. Sadly, people are going around feeling oppressed all the time and they're angry and they're bitter and they're missing the fact that Number one, that there's real oppression going on in the world. And so all of America's resources right now seem to be sunk into this false oppression. Making people pay for their oppression. Giving the government more and more power to go after the bullies. Careful, you give the government that much power and they may decide tomorrow that you're the bully. And we could be helping where there's real oppression and where God expects us to protect the weak, to fight human trafficking, to stand up against ISIS in North Korea and Iran. But everybody's too busy complaining about their own micro-oppression. It's tempting to always be the victim and label everyone else the bully. It's, I get uncomfortable sometimes going out in public because I may not recognize somebody from church or I'm just thinking about my family and what we have to do and I, d I don't notice someone and then they say I ignored them on purpose. No, I didn't. And they feel oppressed. I say, no, it's that I just didn't notice you. That's probably not going to feel real good either, right? Oh, I see how it is. I'm invisible to you. So... If you're that person, I bet you know you're that person, that you have this problem with getting your toes stepped on easily, always finding a reason to complain and feel like you're the victim, and it becomes addictive. And so as we study through Israel's oppression, I don't want you to get 
sunk deeper and deeper into this victim mentality. Everybody's a pharaoh in your life. So let's not go there. And if you need help with that, make an appointment. We'll talk about it. It's a terrible place to be. It feels freeing, but you're in a prison. It feels safe if everybody is the oppressor and I need to hide myself. But that's not a safe place if you can't trust anyone and you're always waiting for somebody to hurt your feelings or attack you. I have a few points for you this morning that I hope then will help us deal with the real oppression that's coming. You know it's coming. If you're a student of history and the history of the church, persecution and oppression is coming. We see our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world oppressed, martyred, starved, imprisoned. We're, We're not there yet. But we'd be naive to think that somehow America would be immune from that kind of oppression. The first thing I want you to understand is that man is to blame for the evil of oppression. And there's no shortage of evil men on this planet. And so oppression will flourish until Jesus returns. It's not a matter of if, it's more a matter of when. Exodus 1.9, he, meaning this, this new king in Egypt, said to his people, Behold, the people of the sons of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal wisely with them, or else they will multiply, and in the event of war they will also join themselves to those who hate us and fight against us and depart from the land. So they were afraid either they would topple their power structure or they would just flat out leave and leave all the heavy lifting and hard work. So they appointed taskmasters over them to afflict them with hard labor. This is the classic way to oppress people. Wear them out. Right, teenagers? That's how your parents keep you oppressed. Lots of chores. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Well, why would people feel the need to do this? Why do people oppress? We understand it's sin, but what's at the heart of this particular sin? People like to be in control. They feel safe. They feel like God when they're in control. And... They're afraid of losing control, so they use oppression to keep people under their thumb on an individual level or a corporate level or even a national level. Secondly, they, they see the opportunity to better their situation materially. So exploitation is a reason for oppression. Slave labor. 
Again, it happens at the individual level, the corporate level, the national level. At the individual level, it kind of sounds like this. You're nothing without me. You won't survive on your own. This is the poor, battered woman who stays in a dangerous situation at home. And she's oppressed so he can have his meals cooked and clothes cleaned. Thirdly, though, and this is the one that I see most often, is just tearing down another in order to elevate your own self-image. To make you feel better about yourself by oppressing other people. Well, when we put it that way, do some soul-searching this week and see if you're not guilty of doing some oppression. Second point, we must fear God more than we fear oppression. Beloved, if oppression is coming on the church in America, we need to be ready. And our response isn't to hide. Our response isn't, if you can't beat them, join them. Our response shouldn't be to compromise. Our response needs to be to fix our eyes on Jesus. Remember Jesus said, fear, do not fear man who can only kill the body, but fear God who has authority over what the body and the soul. And... In Exodus, this king decides that the way we will keep Israel from growing any larger is to kill off the newborn baby boys. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other was named Puah. Now, it wasn't that there was only two midwives for a nation of two to three million. They were. <laughs> thank you. I think they uh, were in charge of the other midwives. When you are helping the Hebrew women to give birth and see them upon the birth stool, if it is a son, then you shall put him to death. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the boys live. As much as they could, they obeyed civil authority, but not to murder an innocent. And so, beloved, we will have to figure out with God's grace and His wisdom how to submit to civil government without disobeying our God. We can figure that out together prayerfully. I know these sermons are taped and they're on the internet. I cannot marry anyone other than a Christian man and a Christian woman without violating my conscience and disobeying my God. There, it's on public record. But there's a... I will also not marry a believer to an unbeliever because that would also violate Scripture. 
And I would never tell a married couple that God would be pleased with you separating. And so let's not hyper-focus on this one particular issue. If we're going to defend marriage, then we need to defend all of marriage, including our own marriages. Now, who would do such a thing, this terrible oppression, ordering the killing of children? Child's one child policy? Ethnic cleansing? All around the globe. This is shocking, and yet we see this in our modern day. This isn't to say, well, those barbarians that lived so long ago, so glad man has evolved. Right? Actually, we've just gotten more sophisticated and efficient at killing. Thirdly, God uses oppression to discipline us, sanctify us, and fulfill His plans. That's a hard pill to swallow. It's easy to preach, hard to live. We know this is true, we affirm it, we preach it, and yet when we find ourselves under oppression, it will be very difficult for us to bless the name of the Lord and welcome the discipline. And so we will constantly, while things aren't too bad, affirm, this is true, this is true. What man intended for evil, God will use for good. What man intends for evil, God will use for good. God will use oppression in my life. He'll use trials to sanctify me, to test my faith. And when my faith comes out stronger, that will be a blessing. I'll have more assurance of my salvation than I had before the oppression. It's easy to be a Christian in America. It has been for a long time, but it's going to become difficult. It's going to cost us. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born you are to cast into the Nile, and every daughter you are to keep alive. How could God allow this? Well, he didn't cause the evil, but he's going to use it for good. How so? In many ways that we don't understand, but in one particular way that he's going to show us. Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a daughter of Levi. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, right, they start making more noises. (laughs) And they get bigger. She got him a wicker basket and covered it over with tar and pitch. Then she put the child into it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. You know the story of Moses. And certainly God's going to use oppression in our nation to accomplish many things. But the one thing you can take to the bank, one thing you can take to the bank on the individual level, in your quiet time with the Lord, when you're seeking answers, 1 Peter 1, 3-7, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope 
through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Remember, the greatest evil man ever committed, killing God, God used for the greatest good, the thing we glorify God for more than anything else He's done, to give His Son for our lives. There's some good that came out of oppression, right? Aren't you glad for that? I, sh- I am. And not only that, but so that we would have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. I know many of you are like, why can't America go back to the good old days? Look, the best days America ever had are nothing compared to one day in heaven. Better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. Amen? And beloved, maybe the good old days weren't as good as you thought. It's just always easy to say that. My good old days were the 80s. Everybody's trying to bring back the 80s, so maybe they were the good old days. I don't know why anyone would want the 80s back. who by God's power being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. This very truth that Jesus died for your sins and there's an imperishable inheritance waiting for you. I don't care what laws they pass and what the Supreme Court says, they can't touch my inheritance. Nothing can separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, as is necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Boy, the kind of persecution the church was under when Peter wrote this makes our lives as Americans look like we already have our inheritance. And he's able to write this. Grieved by various trials for a little while. compared to eternity with God. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, and he's saying, look, this is the way you know gold is tested, through fire. But your faith is even more precious than gold because it says gold that perishes though it is tested by fire. Eventually the gold goes away too. We won't be taking it with us. That your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Fourth point, even God's chosen people do not deserve a life free from oppression. We live this way as Americans that, well, that happens to other people in other countries, but not here. This is the land of the free and the home of the brave. Is it not filled with sinful men and women? Were not we enemies of God at one time? Do we not still sin? Though we are justified in Christ, we are not perfectly glorified. We don't deserve hardship. We don't deserve some discipline. 
Exodus 2.10, the child grew and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son and she named him Moses and said, because I drew him out of the water. It's another miracle of God's providence that Moses' mother got to raise him, got to nurse him. And don't just think of nursing as in feeding, nursing as in from the age up to seven got to live in their own home and learn about the true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then went to become a prince of Egypt until he was 40. What kind of education was that, to live in the royal courts and see all the royal business take part, be educated in the things of the world, politics, war, managing a whole society, writing treaties. In fact, when, when God uses Moses to write the Mosaic Law, it's in the form of a treaty that was very common in his day. So God's going to use all this experience to make Moses this great leader. And in fact, the Bible will call Moses the greatest man who ever lived until John the Baptist comes. And yet, listen to what happens here. It came about in those days when Moses had grown up that he went out to his brethren and looked on their hard labors and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own brethren. So he looked this way and that. And when he saw there was no one around, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. Premeditated murder. It's a reminder to us that none of us are guiltless. We cannot say that as individuals we don't deserve hardship, discipline, and punishment. We can't say America doesn't deserve hardship, discipline, and judgment. We can't say the nation Israel didn't deserve Discipline and hardship and judgment. By the way, by this time, historians believe the pharaohs, Thutmose II and III, were the pharaohs that lived while Moses was growing up. And just to remind you of what kind of people these Israelites were. In Exodus 32, 9, the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. They're not humble at all. And we know they're going to worship around the golden calf. Don't get it in your minds that these were these great God-fearing people. And gee, how could Egypt treat them in this way? In fact, look at the next story. He went out the next day, and behold, two Hebrews were fighting with each other. They're not even fighting against the Egyptians. They're fighting against each other. And he said to the offender, why are you striking your companion? But he said, who made you a prince or a judge over us? Are you intending to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Moses was afraid and said, surely the matter has become known, and he has to flee to Midian as he knows Pharaoh will have him killed for murdering an Egyptian citizen. Look at that line, though. 
Who made you a prince or a judge over us? Isn't that the human heart right there? The irony of ironies is we struggle this week with recent decisions. A small percentage of our populace saying to God and to the Christian church, who are you? Who made you king over us? Who made you God over us? I'll be my own God. I'll decide what makes me happy. I'll decide who I want to marry. I'll decide what gender I want to be. And then going to a human judge and giving him the authority to judge over us. And not seeing the irony that don't we now have a right to say to justice, the five justices, who made you a prince or a judge over our faith? So, Moses flees to Midian. Point number five, we should help those suffering under oppression. Instead of putting all this focus on me being oppressed, and I want to get even, and I want to, I I have my rights, we should look for those who are actually being oppressed. According to God's definition. I understand you probably have Christian friends who believe that the homosexual community has been oppressed. And you're confused over how to interact with them because they were celebrating on Facebook as well. And you said, these are my Christian friends. Why are they celebrating this? Somehow they allowed the culture to tell them that, A, these people were born this way and they can't help it, and B, why should we keep them from expressing the highest form of love two human beings can express to one another in marriage? Isn't this a good thing, they said. And you're oppressing these people, and it's been going on too long. And so they really thought they were helping fight against oppression. But, beloved, you have to let God define what is oppression and what isn't oppression. If you want something that God says you shouldn't have, it's not oppression that He won't let you have it. It's love. Let's not confuse God's love with oppression. So Moses is in Midian, and there's this priest of Midian with seven daughters, and they come to draw water for their father's flock, and these shepherds come and oppress them, drive them away, won't let them water their flocks. And Moses comes to their rescue. He's kind of built for this coming to people's rescue. This Moses. When they came to Ruel, their father said, Why have you come back so soon today? Which gives me a chuckle because he must be used to his daughters coming back late from being molested by these, these uh, shepherds. And by molested, I don't mean sexual. I mean they won't, they won't let him water their flock. He's like, Hey, daughter's back so soon today. I just wonder why the father never sent some men with them to help his daughters. So they said, an Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds, and what is more, he even drew the water for us and watered the flock. Good for Moses. Well done. And 
Moses is invited to come live with this Midianite family and becomes part of the family, and he gives one of his daughters to Moses as a wife, Zipporah. Last point today. Exodus ends shifting the focus away from Midian back to Egypt, and the oppression is getting so great now that the people cry out to the Lord. We don't hear them crying out to the Lord when everything was going well. And isn't that the case? Often things have to go bad in our life before we'll cry out to the Lord. And yet I want to leave you with this this morning. The worst oppression we'll ever face comes from our own sin nature. The worst oppression we ever face comes from our own sin nature because it's our sin that keeps us oppressed from the blessings of relationship with God. If that's the greatest thing in our life, then the greatest oppression would be whatever takes us away from the greatest thing in life. And if God's the greatest thing in life, then our sin is the greatest oppressor. And so we should be crying out every day that God would free us from oppression. Yes, oppression's coming, persecution's coming. But there's a worse oppression and persecution that's already here. And it's in our own hearts. And praise God, we're going to see as He delivers Israel from Egypt. It's all a picture that points to the ultimate deliverance. The Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world and delivers His people from the bondage of sin and the penalty of sin. And so I call the church along with myself to cry out to the Lord instead of saying, why, why, why is this happening in America? Don't forget where the worst oppression comes from. Don't become like our enemies. Pray for our enemies. Don't become embittered because they're quote-unquote ruining our country. Folks, this is just a temporary stopover. Our true citizenship is in heaven. And maybe the worse things get here, the more we'll be driven to the cross and the more souls will be saved. Maybe this country's been far too happy and compliant or uh, complacent comfortably sitting in its own filth, moralism, self-righteousness. Not to say that our country doesn't have things it can't be proud of in as far as we were obedient to Christ and obedient to the Great Commission. Yes, God has done wonderful things to this nation and we are proud of those things and give God the glory for those things. And yet... The seasons are changing, but the mission is still the same. Now it came about in the course of those many days that the king of Egypt died, and the sons of Israel sighed because of the bondage, and they cried out, and their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. But listen to this. God heard their groaning, and God remembered His covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God saw the sons of Israel, and God took Notice of them, meaning he got ready to act. And beloved, when you 
cry out to the Lord and grieve over your sins and say, deliver me from this residual sin. Or if you don't know Christ yet, cry out to the Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Deliver me from this bondage. Read Romans 7 this week and hear Paul say, who will deliver me, O wretched man that I am, from this bondage? And when you cry out to the Lord, He will hear your groaning. He will remember His covenant He made with His people, the new covenant in Christ's blood. He will remember that covenant. He'll see sons and daughters He adopted through our faith in Christ. And He will take notice. He will act. He is faithful and just to forgive us all our sins and to give us the power to say no to the oppressor in us all. And that is a message we can take to the world. Don't start the conversation with the Supreme Court and with the Constitution. Start the conversation with, do you know you're not as free as you think you are? Let me tell you what keeps you enslaved. It's your own sin. And let me tell you how you can be ultimately free. People love freedom. And we're surrounded by neighbors who don't know that they're really in bondage. So, the 4th of July is over. Today's the 5th of July. And the gospel is still the same message. Jesus came to set people free. And if you are free, you will be free indeed. Let's pray. Father, we cry out to you because of the oppressor in us all. This wretched sin attempts us to believe that following you will not bring us happiness or satisfaction. Lord, free us from the bondage of such lies. Thank you for freeing us from the penalty of sin. And Holy Spirit, thank you for freeing us from the power of sin. That the power that raised Christ from the dead is so liberating. We don't have to say yes to sin anymore. We can say no to sin and yes to righteousness. What a message, Lord. All the flags put away and the fireworks extinguished. Now may the true message that brings freedom reign in our country. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.